Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. We are your hosts, Sadie Carpenter, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter, the one, the only. How is your life today? Going pretty well. How are you doing? I'm good. We are recording this on February the 14th. It is Valentine's Day. And I realize this is two weeks after our Valentine's Day special came out. That has been out, and it is the 14th of February. Um, It is Valentine's Day today, and I hope that all of you listeners will be my Valentine in a platonic way. Well, that's very sweet. My name is Gabrielle Hacohen. We are kind of picking up where we left off last week with Shannon Harris's book. Shannon Harris is the ex-wife of Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And just a few years ago, she came out with a book called The Woman They Wanted. As part of our research for the episode we did last week uh, about I Kissed Dating Goodbye, both Sadie and I read The Woman They Wanted, and we thought that it was so good that we had to devote an entire episode to talking about this book because it is fantastic. Yeah, this book was way more than I expected it to be in a fantastic way. I went in thinking I was going to get a postmortem on a marriage. This this book is a postmortem on a marriage, but it is also postmortem on 20 years spent within an evangelical subculture and what that does to a human being and specifically what that does to a woman. Absolutely fantastic book. And I am so pumped up to talk about it. People come out with deconstruction memoirs 
This one is different in that Shannon Harris was the wife of an actual megachurch pastor. And that's not a view that you get to see every day. Um, That's not a uh, perspective that gets told all of the time. And it's also interesting because she's somebody who got sucked in as a grown adult, not somebody who was born into the church and who was raised in it. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast mostly about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the IFB, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's some things that you can do in order to to support us, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where you will get an extended, uncensored, ad-free version of most of our episodes. You'll also get our um, bonus Valentine's Day episode that we came out with a couple weeks ago, uh, in which we reviewed a marriage book written by disgraced pastor Jack Scop of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. It was not a very good book, but we had fun talking about it. And that review is up on our Patreon for our patrons. Um, you can also join our Facebook group and our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus and facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. One more thing before we thank the patrons. If you are a faith promise mission or I gave it all to your patron this coming weekend, uh, either on the second or the third, uh, and by the time this episode goes out, it will have been decided. So make sure you check Patreon for that. We're having our we're having a a patron group chat, a patron like live uh, a Zoom call with us, and we're going to be there, and it's going to be a lot of fun um, for our Faith Promise mission. And I gave it all to your patrons, so really excited to have that with you guys. Um, Sadie, do you want to thank the patrons? Sure thing. Our I Gave It All to Your Patrons are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Manown, Melora King, and Todd Dale on behalf of his Deconstructorina wife, Madeline Antrim. Thank you so much to the I Gave It All to Your Patrons. Our Faith Promise Missions to Your Patrons are Alex P., Allie Allen, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Krista Walker, Dora J., Eleanor Donahue, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jana Connor, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Hinwood, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Melissa G., Morgs, Rob the Methodist, Stephanie Johnson, Stephen Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and Wes the Cowboy. Thank you guys so much for subscribing to our Patreon. Um, and thank you to all of our patrons and just to all of our listeners, all of the people who support us in non-financial ways, including uh, recommending the show to your friends, your family, your coworkers, and like we couldn't do it without you we could not uh, justify dedicating the amount of time that we spend on this show to making the show if it wasn't for the support that you guys give us which is tremendous yes thank you so much to those who support us financially those who support us other ways we are so thankful that you give us this audience and give us the platform that we have 
Do you want to hit us with the TW and then we will be on our way? Sure thing. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid any graphic detail unless it's necessary to the story that we're telling. And if we are going to go into any graphic detail, we will give the audience a heads up before we do so. This episode is very heavy on misogyny, purity culture, the pressures on women in evangelical culture, the pressures on pastors' wives in evangelical culture. But I don't believe there's anything extra triggering included in this episode. All right. So let's get into this book. Uh, Shannon Harris grew up as a secular child in a her mother was raised very strictly catholic and shannon was raised sort of culturally catholic but her mother wasn't particularly interested in pushing that onto her children she found a love for music at a young age she became really interested in broadway in show tunes and also in writing and wanting to to perform and write her own original music as part of writing and performing original music, she ended up interacting with people who were members at a church in the local area. She was in sort of like the DC metro area. And this church was well known for its music. And that's how she became involved with uh, Covenant Life Church. Around this same time, Covenant Life Church, pastored by CJ Mahaney, had kind of poached Josh Harris to come to the church to allow Mahaney to be his mentor, to prepare him for the eventual position of pastor. What I see going on here is I feel like Mahaney is kind of scooter brawning Joshua Harris a little bit. Can you explain that? Oh, he's the guy that like discovered Justin Bieber. and Okay. Like Justin Bieber was getting popular from YouTube videos and Scooter Braun was the guy that like brought him into the big time. Shannon had become a part of Mahaney's church kind of through friends and she was sucked in by getting opportunities in the music program. And around the same time, Mahaney got a hold of Josh um, I'm reading from the book at the at a conference. At the conference, CJ was intentional about pursuing him, persuading him to enter the ministry on the basis of his charisma and gift for public speaking. He suggested to Josh that he was a Timothy in need of a Paul, meaning a young man who needed an older mentor. He offered himself as that mentor and invited Josh to come live with him and his family in their home. Right around the same time as I Kiss Dating Goodbye was published, Josh Harris went to Mahaney's church to be an assistant pastor with the intention of one day becoming pastor. I want to talk about how Shannon was sucked into the church because that was really interesting to me. This was such a, oh, wow, like this is how they get you moment for yeah. reading this. So the church had... And, and this is pretty common. Churches may have, instead of a Wednesday night church service, they may have small group meetings. These are often done in people's homes and might have 10 or 20 members. 
and it's more similar to a Sunday school class. So you meet with your small group, you have maybe snacks and do a Bible study midweek. And in this church at Covenant Life, they called these care groups. So I'm reading from page 38. It was common for a new person to be invited to visit a care group. It was a brilliant retention tactic, actually, because a person couldn't officially join a care group until becoming a member, and they couldn't become a member until they took a 10-week course and agreed in writing to what they had learned. People just wanted to get to the fun stuff, so it was easy to be all, yeah, yeah, I agree, and miss the fine print. The 10-week course and agreeing to like, what what do you have to sign on to like a statement of faith? You have to sign on to Mm -hmm. like an honor code, something like that. That seems kind of culty to me. It does. And she is absolutely right that this is a brilliant retention tactic. You couldn't join a care group until you joined the church. And you couldn't join the church, she writes, until you agreed to do two things. Quote, attend a small group regularly and commit to a volunteer team. Oh, and agree to be put under church discipline if necessary. So the care group here is kind of the carrot on the stick. The care groups are fun. They offer a sense of community. It's built in friends and people want that. So they're willing to jump through all the hoops to become a member. And when you become a member, you have to commit to being on a volunteer team. So then you're caught up in gunning for which volunteer team do I want to be on? Because you want to be on the team that you, you know, if you're into decorating, you want to be on the decorating team. Or if you are Shannon and you're a singer, you want to be on the worship team. Nobody wants to end up on the janitorial volunteer team. So you're so caught up in, in her case, auditioning for the worship team that you don't think about how culty this is until you're already locked into this whole string of events along the lines of joining this church. So when Shannon starts to get involved with this church, her mother who frequently throughout this book ends up being quite a voice of reason in her life, but who unfortunately gets tuned out for most of it, warns her. She says that she finds these people to be disingenuous. She thinks that this is manipulative. She thinks that this is a bad situation. And Shannon kind of hand waves her away and says, no, I, I, I disagree with you. I think that this is giving me something that I'm missing in my life. Yes. And... She auditions for the worship team and immediately gets on the team. See, that's kind of interesting to me because when they see something that they want, they immediately give it to you. It's almost like you ever go to a job interview and they offer you the job at the interview and you're like, hmm, if you're offering it to me that quickly, then is there something else that I should know? Shannon gets onto the worship team and is pretty much immediately asked to sing on the church's new album that is about to come out. So this church is kind of doing the Hillsong thing. They have bands that are a part of the church ministry. And she's been asked to sing on this album. The worship leader's wife is not kind to her during the recording sessions. And she has an issue with it. She wants to stand up for herself. And the worship leader... I think very cleverly manipulates her into 
deciding that she's okay with all of this. Well, he sort of blackmails her and Mm -hmm. says, because what happens is she goes to his home studio to record the song. The recording session is, she's just not comfortable in the space. She's not comfortable with the situation. And it's not similar to the ways that she's done music before. She's a little uncomfortable. She's got high, some high anxiety. And then she's got this woman who is, the way that she described it, she didn't really go into specifics, but being pretty cruel to her when she's doing something, when she's giving a performance, they're treating it as if here's this thing that you're giving us, but you have the opportunity to give it to us. Mm -hmm. And this woman is treating her quite poorly. She sort of gets gaslit by Bob, who is the worship leader, who is the, the, one engineering the session that says if you cry like that because she you know she is getting upset and she cries during the recording session if you cry like that again you will never record with us again so let's talk about the cult tactics here i've spoken about how a person gets pulled in in the ifb and i feel like there are a lot of similarities so in the ifb people are similarly given a job shortly after they begin attending a church. And this calls back to so many episodes, the Paul Sand episode, um, anytime we've ever talked about Victor Nischik, they were given jobs in the church and then Jack Hiles had their job in the church to hang over their head to control them. So what happened to Shannon is she she got really into care group. She wanted to be in a care group. Her friends were in care groups. So she was willing to take the membership course and agree in writing to what she had learned, but then her membership was contingent upon being on a volunteer team. She was a talented singer. She had actually been planning to move to Nashville to pursue a music career, but got caught up in the worship team and wanted to be on that team, auditioned and made it, and then faced some pretty abusive behavior while on the worship team. She was doing a lot of unpaid labor. She was not being treated nicely, but the worship team is now something worth fighting for in her mind, something worth sacrificing for. Do you see how the church made that, that position on the worship team? something worth pursuing it it placed some of her identity in that position and then that gave them a, a new avenue for control yes my thought about this especially with like coming from somebody who is a musician and who has done a lot of performing of music i'm sure sadie you will be able to relate to this as well playing in a church playing as part of a worship team the thing that you a lot of musicians crave is the validation from an audience, is the feeling like they're connecting to their audience. Sometimes in extreme cases, this can turn into a sort of narcissism, into a sort of like, I need to hear the audience, you know, that they love me. I need to like, that's how I experience love that I'm missing otherwise in my life. And that can be kind of problematic. But you give somebody a built-in audience and say, oh, you will perform this for a crowd of people. For a, You have a guaranteed gig with a guaranteed audience every time you play it. And that's something that 
is hard to take away from somebody. Like, so if she decided that she was going to go it alone and move to Nashville and try to do it by herself, then she would probably be playing in cafes. She would be playing in bars. She would be not necessarily being playing in front of large audiences all the time. And so this is something that if she is a person who desires that emotional validation from get from performing, that is something that she would have to be giving up if she were not on the worship team anymore. The other thing that I wanted to say about this is that in my experience from recording music, and I've recorded in home studios, I've recorded in professional studios before. If you go into a session and it is an emotional performance, sometimes people cry, sometimes people are, are like angry or, or, you know, tensions are running high between different other collaborators, between the band and the producer, between the, uh, the singer and the guitar player, between the drummer and the bass player, because I think that they're doing something wrong, whatever that happens. Sometimes you just need to take a minute to cool off, walk out, walk around the block, come in, do another, uh, uh, take of the song and maybe it'll be better this time. That's kind of common. If you're a studio professional, if you're, you know, a hired gun and going into just like go in as a hired gun and, and perform something, then maybe that's less acceptable. But if you're like a member of the band or something like that, then that's something that's kind of seen as like normal. And if you're a, if, you know, there's a good band manager, a good producer, they'll be able to manage egos better. Neither of the things that I'm seeing here are what I would consider to be normal within the music industry. But because she's somebody who doesn't have experience within the music industry, then she wouldn't know that the way that she's being treated is not normal. This book starts telling stories about all of the small parts of herself that she was asked to give away and some big parts of herself that she was asked to give away. And th I think this is maybe where it starts. She is caught up in this music program and she's asked not to stand up for herself. And then she meets Josh Harris. He had just recently published I Kiss Dating Goodbye. She was actually with him when he unpacked the first books, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he got he gave her a signed copy of it. Yeah. Which is a kind of, I don't know. That's weird. It is weird, but it's also kind of a flex. <laughs> like. I guess. Like, hey, pretty girl at church, here's the book that I wrote about dating. I'm an expert. I think it's also funny that at this time, are we going to talk about this now that she had more dating experience than he did? Yes. she. So Shannon was not a virgin and had dated some in the past, which was going to be a little bit of a, a problem for her and Josh's relationship. The impression that I got when I was reading this section of the book was that Shannon was almost picked to be Josh's wife by CJ, by uh, CJ Mahaney said, this, mm -hmm. is the, this is the woman that I think it would be good for you to date and marry. And part of that, the way that Shannon alluded to it, uh, because she'd had a past history where she'd she had sex in high school. She dated men in college. Um, she'd had boyfriends in college. One that she described as saying that she decided to break up with him because he felt entitled to her body. 
And so she was somebody who, before joining this church, she was somebody who understood that she had ownership over her own body mm-hmm. um, and over her own personhood. But because of the the way that the church teached about uh, uh, preached about purity, the impression that Shannon gave was that the reason why she may have been sort of selected to be Joshua Harris's wife, to be the wife of the future pastor was because she had these blemishes on her past, as uh, they would say, that could then be used as a weapon against her in order to keep her in line because she had these and they were a weakness that could be exploited. I have a quote about this um, from page 62. It didn't even matter that Josh himself hadn't been completely chased. His sexual history wasn't up for discussion. The double standard was alive and well. Because of me, Josh wouldn't get his innocent virgin bride and someone needed to account for that. So she talks about wanting, thinking that if she got married in the church, it would be safer. She, her parents divorced when she was a child and it was difficult for her. And just like I talked about with the highways into fundamentalism episode, Wanting something better for your own marriage, family, and kids than you had growing up is such a mega highway into Christian fundamentalism. Because all of these different groups in different ways promise you that if you will follow our way, you will have something better. And that's exactly what happened to her. She felt like a church marriage, a marriage within this church, would prevent any future kids that she had from ever experiencing what she did. But as soon as she started started dating Josh, the expectations on her were higher. I am going to want to read you this story uh, from page 59. Suffice it to say, it had been a crazy week in a crazy place and I was tired. So during worship, I had my hands resting in the back pockets of my jeans instead of raising my hands in the usual passionate way that people did during the singing. Because I'm human and my arms were tired, and because they were my arms. The service ended, and before I finished collecting my things to leave, the woman sitting behind me tapped me on the shoulder and proceeded to ask me if she could talk to me a moment. It sounded very grave, so of course I said yes, but if this ever happens to you, just tell the person you don't have any moments. It was the hands in the jeans, of course. I wasn't worshiping good enough now that I was in a relationship with the youth pastor. I needed to be an example. The church called them observations but they were also a control tactic and method of gauging a person's willingness to conform. If you didn't receive someone's observation well, you might be labeled unteachable or worse. Ooh, that hurt to read. That's just like extremely nitpicky, but I guess that will separate the wheat from the chuff. If you're not willing to deal with the busy bodies watching your every moment, then I guess you're not cut out to be the wife of the youth pastor, are you? Right. And they they do this in the IFB, but this seems like a more formal version of it. If there's an actual term for it, the church called them observations. If there's an actual name for when people bully you about not doing church hard enough, it seems like it's more of a formal process in this church than the informal in the IFB where you're just supposed to listen to anybody older than you and anybody who's a man. I thought that is really culty. That feels really culty, and that pissed me off just reading it. But the, here's the thing. They have set her up with an inferiority complex because she was not a virgin. 
And because this guy who was Mr. Perfect, Mr. I wrote, I kissed dating goodbye, was going to marry her, even though she had a checkered past and wasn't a virgin, they've set her up for this inferiority complex where everything she's going to feel like she needs to prove herself all of the time. I mean, they're essentially negging her into submission. Yeah. This is very, the whole church sounds very culty, but this is such an interesting uh, account of one person's cult-like experience. The way that I see it, as we spoke about last week, it is a reformed evangelical uh, charismatic church. And the reformed theology is essentially Calvinist theology. Part of the Calvinist theology is the teaching of total depravity, that humans are incapable of doing anything that is truly pleasing to God. Personally, as somebody who is not Christian, who didn't grow up Christian, one of the things that that is the biggest problem for me with Christian theology in general is the, I accept that I am a sinner. The, the whole, like, they start you out by saying, I accept that I am a sinner and I have to do something to make sure that I'm good again. That feels like that is all, that sets you up for inferiority to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the, this church with reformed theology Reformed theology with the teaching of total depravity sort of takes that to the next level. Yeah, there's a joke very early. She gets into it more in the back half of the book, but very early in the joke, there's or very early in the book, there's this cute little joke about um, and total depravity is why I have to go to therapy. And I'm like, yeah, feel you, <laughs> feel you there, friend. Sadie, how much more therapy do you think that you would need if your IFB church had been reformed? Oh, I mean, I would call <laughs> now. Li- listen, if I said this to my dad, he if, if my dad hears this, he might come haunt me. But I would call the church that I grew up in two and a half point Calvinist. Interesting. Which points? So it's not a limited atonement because that's the so the IFB that I grew up in absolutely taught total depravity. Um, did not teach limited atonement. They really went back and forth on um, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So, hardy, yes, total depravity. There is no so, there is no good in people. Hard, no, limited atonement. But they really just waffled on everything else, like sort of believed in unconditional election because the IFB that I grew up in was if it is God's will for you to get saved, you will get saved. And also they have the teaching of once saved, always saved. Right, which is perseverance, which runs kind of parallel to perseverance of the saints. And then unconditional election and irresistible grace are kind of two sides of the same coin. If God wills you to get saved, you will get saved. And if the Holy Spirit impresses on your heart that you will get saved, you will get saved. I would I would say eh, maybe two and a half if you average them all out. But we absolutely believed in total depravity. <laughs> okay, so that makes sense. Thanks for uh, for telling me that. That um... yeah. So the answer is a lot of therapy <laughs> so far. How much between uh, uh, more and all of the is the? <laughs> no, I did like I do think that uh, that Shannon did say a number of things in this book that I feel like I could have heard coming out of your mouth. 
Yeah, I have some quotes that I want to talk about during the when I talk about deconstruction stuff that I really, really identified with. So now that we've talked about how she was sort of conditioned to accept this role that she had, do we want to talk about the marriage, the wedding? Yes. So uh, this this quote is just about kind of marriage in the church at large. And this is from page 66. One woman who was having doubts about marrying was told that attraction to her potential husband wasn't important. She just needed to ask herself if she could follow the man. Keeping relationships chaste was such a focus that attraction and physical chemistry were hardly discussed until engagement. You talked almost exactly about that last week. You told a story. Getting getting that in writing was really kind of something to me because that explains so much when she does talk about her marriage to Josh. I think the thing that knocked us both off of our feet real bad was a quote from page 202. This is sort of from she and her husband are both kind of simultaneously deconstructing. But not together. Not together. And they're trying to go to like marriage counseling and figure out how they see each other and what their relationship together even looks like now that they're not in the church. He's not the pastor. She's not the pastor's wife. They're just people now. So this is a quote that she wrote about that point in her life. Do you know, in 19 years of marriage, my husband never once looked into my eyes and told me I was beautiful. That hurt to read. It. This is where I was coming from last week when I talked about seeing him less as a villain and more as a self-centered and clueless person at this point in his life. The impression that I get from Josh is that is is kind of twofold. One, on one hand, I think that he's the kind of person that thinks that complimenting a woman on her appearance is cheap, is disingenuous, is complimenting somebody on something that is insincere and and temporal and represents something poor about yourself. Um, that that's what you're complimenting on them on. That's what you're prioritizing. The way I see his brain working is that he's, it's never like come to his mind that somebody's appearance is something that they would want to have complimented. That, you know what I'm saying? That like, he's like, well, she should know that she's pretty because of course she is. Yeah, I can, mm-hmm, I can see that. <laughs> Is is that what she wants to be complimented on? If that's what she wants to be complimented on, then that's kind of like a sign of our priorities are not in line because I would rather be in love with somebody's heart and somebody's mind than their body. You know, that's kind of the impression that I get from him, which uh, men, if you're single, um, a single man listening to this, I can uh, the, 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 like 1% of our audience that is single dudes who date women. <laughs> That is not yeah, it. That 1% is like literally the 1% of our audience that is single men who date women. Uh, I just need to let you know right now that is not it. Uh, everybody wants to be complimented on their appearance. Everybody wants to feel like they're attractive and beautiful and pretty or handsome. Also, or yes, absolutely. Cute. Definitely ask people what kind of compliments they prefer, but also if you are a person who is dating a straight guy, try telling him he's really pretty and see what happens. Because (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously, the toxic straight guys are going to flip out, but non-toxic straight men have probably never been told they're pretty and they deserve to. <laughs> I, I've been told I have pretty eyes. And did you like it? Oh, it made me feel a little melty in the middle. It was nice. See? Yeah. That's- <laughs> so let's rewind. Let's talk about some of the early courtship and early marriage stuff in this book. Yeah, because they fast-tracked their relationship. They really did. Twice. Well, it was going to be a fast track to begin with, and then he like moved it up even further. Here, let's, let's see. I was getting updates on how my relationship was going through Josh, who unbeknownst to me was getting them from CJ. I saw Josh as an independent, capable young man who had been working for the past four years running a magazine and conferences on his own. I had no idea how much Josh was being influenced and infantilized by CJ. It's going to be a long courtship and a short engagement, Josh told me at first. A little while later, the plan was reversed. How they kind of framed it was that they want to get this guy married. Like This guy is prime stock as far as future Christian influencers go. He's going to be popular. He's going to be successful. He's going to be influential. But also, he's going to have a lot of attention on him from possibly women who have less than the loftiest of moral compasses. Therefore, we need to get him married off the market quick so that he doesn't stumble. Yeah, and married before he can get caught smooching somebody in the back of the church or something that would ruin his testimony. Yeah, he can't have that. But also at the same time, he didn't exactly have an intact testimony. So it was fine that they kind of married him to somebody who also was had what they would call a checkered past, but also just a, a normal life. Yeah, normal life. This whole relationship was set up with the concept that Josh would become the lead pastor at Covenant Life. So CJ Mahaney is mentoring him. And Carolyn, Mahaney's wife, is mentoring Shannon. She is teaching her recipes and talking to her about the challenges of being a pastor's wife. Shannon felt like she was under a microscope and that Mahaney didn't really feel that she was good enough for Josh. The way that she described different pastor's wives in their group as having different specialties or places to shine. So one woman's specialty would be hostessing, and then another person's specialty would be child rearing, and another one's specialty would be cooking or decorating. And she felt like she had to find her niche. That was really poignant to me because as she's writing that, I'm seeing faces in my mind of people that I knew. When you were in the IFB, what did you think your niche was going to be? Was it going to be like baking? Was it going to be baking, like, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Great baker. There was a, an emotional moment in the book when Shannon describes how she really wanted to get good at cooking and she wanted to make that her thing. And she had a recipe for mac and cheese. She was trying to find the right mac and cheese recipe. She wanted to kind of make her own. She wanted to take a piece of herself and put that into the food that she was going to make because this is how she was going to feed her family going forward. And, you know, the food you cook is a piece of your identity. I 
fully agree with this. I fully agree with this idea that, the, the, you know, the food you cook, that's part of who you are. Joshua was just like, oh, well, you should just get my mom's recipe and make that rather than being willing to kind of entertain her and really, uh, I don't want to say humor her because that seems kind of a bit demeaning, but really just kind of like give her a little bit of leeway and say, you know what, you can figure out how you want to do if you want to start simple and then get more complicated as it goes, then you can do that. But it seemed very much like he there was a right way and a wrong way to do things. And the way that she felt compelled to do whatever it was that she wanted to do always, no matter what, turned out to be the wrong way. And that hurt to read, especially as somebody who just loves food and who just loves like cooking and understands how much you put a piece of yourself into something that you want to cook and how much that can also be a piece of self-discovery. Yeah. And she is also... You know, not having met this person, but having read a book by Josh and re- having read the book by her, I feel like she is such a creative person, just such a artsy, kind of a tastemaker type person. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, I see what you're talking about. She's going to be your friend and you walk into her apartment and it is totally eclectic decorating style that you have never seen before, but looks incredible. I think she's just naturally that way, like very artistic, intensely creative person. She seems like the kind of person who probably had a lot of friends in high school, but not because she was like mean and popular, but because she was like nice to everyone. That's kind of the vibe that I get from her. I think he is just kind of the opposite of that. He's just intensely logical and type A and there's one way to do things. And you can see this because when he was in the church, he was fully in. And then as soon as he was out, he was fully out. There's nothing wrong with that personality type. There's a lot of things that he has done that are written about in this book and that we've discussed in the previous episode that I don't like, I don't agree with, I don't think were good things to do. But that's not some kind of evil personality type that makes him a bad person. It's just like being, there's nothing wrong with being intensely logical and kind of type A. That's just who he is. The thing that I'm thinking when I read this is that he, he's one of the people who thinks of himself as being a logical person because he doesn't understand that the emotions that he feels aren't logical. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he thinks, oh, well, my emotions are logic, therefore I'm a logical person. My emotions are only influenced by the... That is very much a man in his early 20s slash man in his late 20s slash man in his 30s, depending on how quickly you mature and how quickly you get to you know grow up and be like, uh, oh... Well, and the thing is, he was babied by Mahaney. He was never allowed to outgrow the person that he was. When he wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, when he was 19, 20, 21 years old. So are, are we going to talk about the wedding now? Yeah, we have to talk about the wedding. I'm, I want to read this. It's a little bit of a longer thing, but I think it will be worth it. Yeah, that's totally fine. Shannon's wants for her wedding were just pushed aside from the get-go the entire wedding. She was not allowed to have the girls that she chose to be her bridesmaids as her bridesmaids because Josh was uncomfortable with them because they were high school and college friends from her past worldly life. Was it Josh who was uncomfortable with them or 
because this was all told to her by first by like CJ and by Carolyn. The way that I read it was Carolyn came to her and said, Josh is not comfortable with those bridesmaids. You need to change it. Then when she goes to talk to Josh about it, he's like, "Mm, yeah, well, maybe, I guess, I don't know. But yeah, the impression that I got was that wasn't really something that he had even thought about, but that was probably pushed onto him where CJ said, you're the pastor of this church. We can't have her non-church friends being the bridesmaids. It's just a thing for appearances. And you're like, if this is what you want going forward, this is the sacrifices that you and your family are going to have to make. That's how I imagine that conversation going. And then he says, you have to be able to have this conviction with your wife to talk to her about this if you're going to be married to her. And this is how these things have to run and explains it to him like this is what is going to be required of you. And so when she confronts him about it, he feels like he has to do it because this is something that CJ is putting in his ear. I don't see this coming from Josh. I don't understand why Josh would even think that just from my opinions of him and from my impressions of him. I don't think that that's even a thought that would pop into his head. So I'm going to read a longer quote about this wedding. And this is just heartbreaking. This is tough. The truth is it never was my wedding. I'd been casually dismissed since we started the planning. I'd wanted the wedding to be in a charming chapel. I was told it needed to be in the church. I wanted to have a dinner reception, but the guest list got so large between my guest, Josh's guest, and Carolyn and CJ's guest, we would have gone above budget. I wanted dancing and alcohol at the reception to celebrate our marriage. That was not even open for discussion. My whole family was on the fringes of the activities. I remember seeing my mother and brother there and feeling as though they were foreigners. Perhaps it wasn't intentional, but CJ and Carolyn effectively managed to push me to the outside of my own relationship, my own marriage, my own life. I loved this man and I was so happy to be marrying him, but I was betraying so much of myself in the process. As it turned out, I was not really marrying the man I loved. I was marrying the church and I had not seen that coming. And then um, when the preacher was supposed to say, you may now kiss the bride, he stopped the ceremony and gave a sermon on purity and made a big deal over the fact that they were about to have their first kiss on their wedding day. So as she was walking out of the church on her wedding day, she was crying and everybody thought it was tears of happiness, but it was actually because that was embarrassing. Early in the book, she says that the only time that her mother actually met CJ was at the wedding and CJ wouldn't even make eye contact with her mother. Mm. Just very weird vibes. I I can't imagine. Like, it almost feels like it's like a state wedding. Like a... um, Yes, like if you were part of like a royal family and you were getting married for political reasons rather than marrying somebody who you actually wanted to get married to. And the really big thing is that Shannon wasn't a part of this world. She was brand new to this world. And she was over and over, she says, they didn't see me as a real person. I wasn't a person to them. I was the woman they wanted. They didn't see the real me over and over and over throughout this book. And it led to almost an experience of dissociation on her part, because over and over and over, over the course of several years, people did not see her as a person and did not treat her as a person. And she started to not think of herself as a person. There's a neat analogy about this in kind of the end of this section about marriage. And I want to read that, and then we can go take up the offering. 
and come back. That sounds good. That first year of marriage, I was like a ball of cookie dough placed in the center of a mold and baked in the oven. When the heat hit me, I just slowly melted down into the desired shape. When I hit the walls, I accepted I could go no further. I pressed down my dreams, wants, and needs in big and small ways. I put myself under my husband. I deferred to him. And this is where it gets real fundy real quick. Instead of wanting things, I was content. Instead of doing things I wanted to do, I died to self. Instead of standing up for my preferences, I just tried not to have them. And this is why we think that this is one of the top tier deconstruction memoirs that we've read. This is just the way that she has a way with words and to describe Mm -hmm. these experiences. These are just so evocative. Specifically, how does casual, even unintentional sometimes, misogyny in the church cause women to experience themselves as less of a person? How does that infect affect the internal life of somebody who lives it? Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Whew. You have every right, though. Now that you're out, you have a right to have emotions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What does that do to the inside of a human being? I felt like I was reading parts of my own experience on paper. It's been incredible. I was thinking we should go take up the offering and come back and talk about the second half of the book where she talks about her deconstruction. That sounds good. Let's do that. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about The Woman They Wanted by Shannon Harris, 
great book. Highly recommend this if you are interested in reading a very well-written deconstruction memoir. Really, I mean, we can't recommend this book enough. It feels really honest to both of us. Um, so in the first half, we talked about the... Basically, we took it up through the wedding, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um and now we sort of get into what her married life is like and what her deconstruction looks like. So CJ Mahaney um, hands over the church to Josh Harris and things pretty quickly start to go bad. When's the handover happen? The handover is like sometime in like... 2004. 2004. And it's in 2011, 2012 when the allegations about CJ Mahaney covering up sexual abuse, being a controlling, manipulative boss come out, and he has to take a step away. Right. So the the actual handover comes in 2004, um, and there is kind of a church split around this. So the Mahaney's stay at the church. Carolyn Mahaney is still the leader of the women's ministry. So Shannon doesn't get that leadership position. And it just feels like there is no place for her in the church. The only jobs that she's given to do are like, you need to go talk to this particular woman because she's still working outside the home and you need to tell her to quit it and support her husband. That was a really difficult section to read where she had to... Mm -hmm. Because she had that conversation had with her that if you're going to do this for us, then you need to give up doing your music. You need to give up on your dreams of music. And the way that she describes it when she first got into the church, she was doing music. She was playing music and she was thinking about it. And she was thinking about whether or not she was going to give up on her dream of moving to Nashville and becoming a professional musician, becoming a professional singer and a songwriter. It was announced before she had made the decision that she had made the decision that she was going to give up on her dream and do it. And she was praised heavily for it, even though that wasn't a decision that she had even made. It was made for her. When she early on in being involved with the church, she told somebody that she was thinking about giving up her dream to stay at the church. And the pastor announced it from the pulpit and put her in a position where she didn't feel like she could say no. And that is an extremely manipulative tactic. We don't need to say mm-hmm. any more about that. But she was also put in a position where she essentially had to do this to another woman. So there was another woman who was in the church who was pursuing a career as a veterinarian or a veterinary uh, or a vet tech. Shannon essentially had to go to this woman and tell her, you can't do this. This it, You have to give up on your dream if you want to be here if you you have to be willing to submit to this in july 2011 the documents were released the documents are what you were referencing earlier gavi um intense records of cj mahaney's manipulation hypocrisy even blackmail and evidence that he had covered up sexual abuse in the church and not allowed it to be properly investigated So I'm reading from page 133. A whirlwind followed, complete with national news coverage, and Josh as the current head pastor was the center of it all. To me, he appeared to be being attacked from all sides while scrambling to piece together what happened. Later, I would wonder if CJ had intentionally put my husband in leadership knowing that this storm was brewing. Had he purposely gotten himself out of the spotlight? Though my husband eventually realized that he too had been culpable, 
it was hard not to feel that CJ abandoned him to take the fall. So CJ and his wife decided to pack up the headquarters of the ministry and move to Kentucky. So Josh would remain pastor of that church, but the ministry headquarters for a whole group of churches was going to move. And Shannon went to try to say goodbye in person to three different women who had been very close to her throughout over a decade of working at the same church together. She wants to go see them in person and drop off flowers and say goodbye to these women that are now moving away because they are siding with CJ Mahaney in this effectively church split. Well, they're not really siding with CJ Mahaney. Their husbands are. Their husbands are. Yeah. Their husbands end up on different sides of this, and they are all women with no agency. Mm -hmm. But because they are on uh, opposite sides of this split, and because even though they don't have any animosity towards one another, they essentially can't talk to each other. So she writes, I wondered how I would be received when I showed up. Maybe when I got there, we would hug or smile, weak but knowing smiles, in a brief ceremonial moment, as if to say this era of our life is over. I understood they had no choice but to support their husbands. I was hoping they would understand I didn't either. Wasn't this literally what Carolyn had been teaching us all to do for the past 15 years? Support our men? So what if our men had fallen on different sides of the equation? We could still have sisterhood. And she went to these three women's houses and was received very coldly. Mm. And that really hurt to read. Yep. Forgiveness and grace in hundreds of sermons, thousands of prayers, and every quote, every song, at every meeting, and then to discover that in real life it had no impact on our actual relationships. I had never experienced something so deeply and profoundly disturbing in all my life. So all of this happens. Shannon is starting to really struggle with mental health. She doesn't want to be involved with anything. She is isolating. She's not attending church all the time. She puts her kids in school instead of homeschooling. And Shannon and Josh see a marriage counselor for the first time. This part was really interesting to me because they're seeing a marriage counselor that's an actual marriage counselor, not just somebody from the church who says that they're good at counseling people. Not like the pastor for young marrieds, not the... Yeah. So she says one of the counselors had a 25-year career as a pastor in addition to a PhD in counseling. So that sounds like really a great person for them to be talking to. Right. Somebody who understands the demands of the life that they lead. And And the counselor asks her, what do you want? And she does not know how to answer that question like so many of us who have experience in fundamentalism. The thing that I wonder is that counselor who is used to asking women, what do you want when they come in? I wonder how common Shannon's reaction of like, I don't know, no one's asked me that before is. That's got to be a really, like he's got to know what he's getting at when he asks her that question. So they came back from that counseling session and asked for a sabbatical from the church. The church said, we won't give you six months, but we'll give you three months. And they decided it wasn't enough. 
And Josh decided to move the family to Vancouver to go to seminary. And this is when the deconstruction started. (laughs) I don't know. I think I would personally put Shannon's deconstruction starting a little bit earlier than Josh's. But this feels like where this is the deconstruction is starting for Josh. Because up to this point, while Josh had been the pastor of the church, he had never had any formal theological training. Yeah. And as I said in the last episode, uh, he went to seminary and then oops, all deconstruction. (laughs) So she started realizing that outside of the church, uh, she says, I didn't recognize my marriage here. It wasn't inflated with importance here. We weren't famous or special. We weren't needing to uphold the laws of someone else's kingdom. We were just two ordinary people. More than a few times, I looked at Josh, cocked my head to the side and thought, wait, do I know you? This other quote, I thought, really, if this is accurate about the way that he thought, it lines up with everything else that I that I hypothesized about him in our last episode. I thought our relationship would grow and change as we grew and changed as people, but that did not happen. Instead, I committed to a specific fixed role that was not to ever change. I did not understand that in my husband's mind, marrying a woman was something like checking a box on a to-do list. Wife, Hmm. check. Mother, check. I do not think he fully understood he was marrying a woman with needs of her own. But this is what he was taught in his family and his church. The church says, if you have marriage, you have love and intimacy. But that was not true for our relationship. Yes, we loved one another, but we could not sustain a relationship based on the teachings of the church alone. There was not enough room in our marriage for me. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I would expect from the person who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye, because that book really does feel like it was written from the perspective of, okay, dating sucks. This is how you get through it as quickly as possible with the desired result. This is your... your uh, Yeah, this is how you get your result. Yeah, it's, it's results-based. It's not process-based. Yeah, and the result that you are going to get is the result that you deserve, which is a wife. You know, he who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And you, you know, you find a wife who is told that she wants the same thing as you do. So, you know, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? Okay. I mean, it's like making friends with dudes. It's like, do you like sports? Okay. Do you like video games? Okay. Do you like race cars? Okay, cool. We're friends now. Like, and I just thought that passage was so interesting because it is not her blaming him or making him out to be any kind of bad person, but she is also not making excuses for him. She is not still protecting him with her words. She is working on moving past that. And I thought that feel it feels very honest to me. The thing that comes back to me is the the central point of I Kiss Dating Goodbye is you do it this way and you get the best result. And the way that Joshua Harris describes being in love in I Kiss Dating Goodbye sounds like a fever dream he's talking about how you don't eat and you don't sleep and you can't think about anything else every waking moment you only think about one person and one person all the time and it clouds your judgment so much that you might accidentally follow google maps when it tells you to drive your car into a lake because you just weren't paying attention (laughs) whatever i mean that last part was made up but that's kind of the vibe that he's getting and from reading this book It seems to me that that never existed within this marriage. 
Right, which is kind of wild to me. So if that's what he thought that being in love was like, and he didn't really feel it when he was dating his eventual wife, like, how does that work? Right. And, you know, he made a point and a point was made in this book that when they were going out before they were engaged, before they were married, they didn't just follow the rules of I kiss dating goodbye. They followed an even more extreme version because he's a public figure and he has to avoid any even appearance of impropriety. They did everything extra good. And so it almost feels like he was put in a position where he has to sacrifice his marriage for the movement. Right. And he has to sacrifice the happiness of his wife, his desires and his wants and needs for the good of the movement, which is going to change a generation, which is going to make sure everyone else gets this passion, this love, this thing that he's out here advertising. And it just, it's such a lie. It's such an absolute farce. It is really interesting to think, you know, did what was going on in his head. I would love to know if he maybe thought he was making a sacrifice or if he thought that, you know, maybe when he wrote that in his book, he was talking about the way that other people felt love and didn't think that he was capable of it. Or I don't know. It's really interesting to wonder what was going on in his head. Well, you know, when you're young, when you're like in your 20s, uh, early 20s, late teens, early 20s, you know, you can get talked into going out with somebody that you might not have otherwise wanted to go out with because, you know, maybe they're friends with your uh, friend's girlfriend or something like that. Or they're, they're friends with a partner of, of somebody who you're friends with. And they're like, oh, wouldn't it be cute if we were all like and you go out and maybe you're not into it, but you're like, oh, actually, like, OK, I had a good time, but, you know, maybe not. And your friend's like, no, nah, dude, you, you like her. Admit it, dude. You like her. And you're like, I don't know, maybe a little bit. And they're like, yeah, no, no, he does. He does. And then you kind of talk yourself into it. Like that. that's a thing that happens. And I'm sure that that, ex- that happens in the secular world. That happens in the fundy world, too, where people are trying to get their friends to date their friends so they can have their kind of cup. Like, Yeah. Gr- but that's almost sort of what I can see going on here that like CJ would be like, no, this is the girl for you. And Josh is like, I'm not sure. And he's like, no, dude. Trust me, I, I know what I'm talking about here. And then he can, Josh can kind of talk himself into it because like he's written this whole book about passion. And if he doesn't feel that he has to talk himself into accepting something less than that. And the way that Shannon describes it, he never really expressed that passion for her that he wrote about in his book. Before starting to deconstruct marriage. So she's already done a lot of deconstruction around, you know, her role in life and her marriage after moving to Vancouver, she starts to expand and think about the roles of women in the church. She met a young theology student named Madison who had the goal of pastoring a small church. She felt like that was her calling. And to Shannon, it was just a moment of realization. Why would anyone want to block Madison's calling just because she's a woman? And then um, Shannon started making new friends like Patty and her partner, Kate. This is a quote from page 154. One evening over dinner, Kate asked me straight up what I thought about their lesbian relationship. It put me on the spot, but by this time I had a hunch our friendship wasn't hanging on the balance of my answer. 
The answer I'd been saying for the past 20 years as a churchgoer was the usual. God loves all people, but the plan for marriage was men and women. That answer is easy to give when the only people you interact with believe what you believe, when you only spend time with people exactly like yourself. It's a very different thing to say those words to your friends who you love, who love each other, whose kitchen you are standing in while eating Chinese food they bought for you. That is such a deconstruction moment. It is. I met a real person out in the real world who challenges the very pat answers that I've been given about people. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know how many, I mean, when we did Pride Month stories, how many people that we had write into us, wrote to us about like, I was taught this thing about, you know, gay people or queer people growing up. And when I started to get out and I started to interact with them before I realized I was one, that was the answer that I gave to people. And now I look back on it and I cringe. That's so many people. Yes. <laughs> that That is a very classic, like you said, very classic deconstruction experience. That is so deconstruction. And I think the church in Maryland was so all-consuming as a mega church, it was, you have to homeschool, you need to be a keeper at home, you have to take care of your husband, take care of your house, you have to be a pastor's wife, you have to lead a women's group, you have to be mentored by the main pastor's wife, you have so much to do. That she just really had very little experience outside that church during the time that she was in it. Well, that's a method of cult control. Is It's not necessarily just telling you, oh, you can't socially interact with people that are outside of this group, I'm sure they would have said, yeah, you can, you can have social interactions with people outside of here, but they'll monopolize your time so much that you just don't have time for them. Yes. She writes on page um, 151, I hadn't seen the whole me in 17 years since I abandoned her in the weeks leading up to my wedding day. I had ignored many parts of myself to make myself fit what the church had asked of me. I was completely disconnected from the mother church that had so fiercely insisted I hold a certain shape. That life was gone now, and it was strange how removed from it I was in every way. Now I felt formless. Oh, you've been told exactly who to be for almost 20 years, and now you don't know what to do outside of it. So there's, there's this anecdote that I want to share because I think it really illustrates how she and Josh were deconstructing differently. Um, I'll read a quote in the next commentary, then I'll finish the quote. Beliefs and principles we'd spent years of our lives upholding were slipping away with no acknowledgement or fanfare, and it made me angry, since I'd exhausted myself upholding these ideas. For instance, kids and communion. Our church wanted children to wait to take communion until they were old enough to make a profession of faith. Before then, it was discouraged. So she then goes on to talk about conversations that she had with her daughter over the course of several years where her daughter was afraid she wouldn't ever be ready or how will I know when I'm ready to make a profession of faith and take communion? I feel like I might be ready, but I'm just not 100% sure. And then finishing the quote, fast forward to some random church in Vancouver we visited maybe three times and out of nowhere, their dad tells the kids to go ahead and take communion because it's fine. It's fine? I felt gut-punched. I had held her off for 14 years because she was supposed to be born again, and all of a sudden that didn't matter. My daughter was confused and angry. And this, yeah, I felt gut-punched by this too. Um, 
That felt significant, though. Yes. Oh, my God. This made me so mad. This made me so mad. Communion is a significant thing. Like taking communion, that's that's a significant thing. Not everyone does it in the same way. Different denominations. Like it, it, right. It, and then Josh just decides to call the shots. He doesn't have a conversation with his daughter beforehand. Doesn't have a conversation with his wife about it beforehand. Right. And putting the anger aside, what was going on in his head? He was fast track deconstructing, and he's already thinking in his head this communion might not mean anything because I might be an atheist. And if it does mean something, it doesn't mean what I thought it did. So it would be fine for my kids to take it. But he doesn't have a conversation with his wife. He doesn't have a preparatory conversation with his kids. He doesn't sit them down and explain to them how his beliefs have changed. He doesn't explain jack sh- to his wife. He just in, springs it on her in the middle of church, says, oh, yeah, go ahead. It's fine. He strikes me as the kind of person who wants to do everything right. He strikes me as the kind of person who wants to have the right answers to every question. And it may just be that at that moment, what he believed was the right answer was, oh, actually, kids should take communion. And he wasn't expecting it totally to get sprung on him in that moment but he gets sprung on it he gets it sprung on him and he's kind of surprised by it he's like oh uh i guess yeah go do it um because that's the right answer because that is the right answer yeah yeah but you know the right answer in a relational sense would be tell your kids to hold off one more time until you can explain it to them and talk with their mom because he's erased shannon's 14 years of work. How often is the guy who's the pastor of the church sitting in church with his family? He's not. He's up on the stage. And it's been Shannon holding down the floor in the pew with her kids by herself for 14 years. It's been Shannon having these bedtime conversations with her daughter for 14 years. And Josh has just erased all of that labor in two words. And I... I'm not unsympathetic towards him. I totally agree with your guess that he felt like it was the right thing and just decided to go for it and do the right thing. I I cannot see this as intentionally misogynistic or intentionally disrespectful to Shannon. I really don't think this was on purpose at all, but it is misogynistic. It is incredible erasure of her life's work at this point. And it is disrespectful to her. I just don't think any of it was on purpose. Yeah. And one of the things that I think can cause a lot of rifts in families is when people feel like, oh, my partner is undermining the work that I'm doing with with the children. Like I'm trying to set. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I'm trying to make sure that my kids are getting all their homework done as soon as they come home from school and that they're eat, eating healthy. And then. I go out of town and I come back to see that my partner is just like, let them put them in front of the iPad and fed them pizza and soda all weekend. And just to like, keep them happy because they don't want to do the, you know, they don't want to maintain the effort that I've been putting in that that's a thing that can cause problems. And I feel like this is the religious version of that. In a, even people who are partnered and do not have children, You can feel like your partner is undermining, you know, I just cleaned the counters and now my partner has left crumbs all over the counters. So, well, that's kind of the whole theme of this book is that Shannon wanted her identity to be 
as a singer. And she was pigeonholed into this identity of wife and mother and cook and homeschooler. And every once in a while, we let you do a little bit of singing. She felt like she was forced to accept the identities and the stories that other people wrote for her. 20 years into all of this, she woke up one day and very painfully realized that she felt like her identity had been taken, like her naming of herself or her self-descriptors had been taken away from her. And she was desperate to fix it. And that's what I think is incredibly inspiring about this book, is that this is the story of somebody who burned every bridge to fix it when they ended up in this position. Uh, there's there's this one other quote I want to read about like deconstruction and marriage stuff, because I think this supports the last one really well. The issue of women and work was another one that I couldn't just brush off. This was the defining feature of our church back home and the reason I set my dreams down on a block of cold ice. But when my husband began suggesting it would be a good idea for me to get a part-time job, I felt an intense anger rise up in me instantly. Each time we'd end up in a circular argument headed for nowhere. It wasn't that I was against working or helping. I was against changing on a dime. Beliefs that had come at great cost to me without a note of appreciation or an acknowledgement that we were ditching them. What happened to, this is a God-ordained belief signed by Jesus in blood red ink. Now that we needed the money, God was suddenly willing to renegotiate the terms. These beliefs had cost me dearly. I'd been busy at home our entire married life. I'd modeled this kind of wife to thousands of women. I had given so much of myself to be the woman they wanted, and I wouldn't, I couldn't pretend that it didn't matter. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of deconstructors, especially deconstructors who got out as a like with their partner with their spouse or something that they would find very relatable you have to sort of build up ways to communicate with each other outside of what you've been told is okay and you yes. still have to figure out wh- how does this leadership dynamic work outside of what we've been told is the right leadership dynamic um or decision making dynamic and here's the thing he is deconstructing all on his own, in his own head. Right, because he's in seminary. He's going to classes. Right, he's in seminary. He's going, he's going, he's about to start the I Survived a Kiss Dating Goodbye Project at this point. He is fast track deconstruction. And now he has gotten to the point in his own mind where, well, maybe it's not a sin for women to work outside the home. And my family really needs money right now because I'm in seminary. So I should ask my wife to get a job. But what he forgot was to take her along on that deconstruction journey. It's almost like reverse. What's the opposite of, you know how there's like weaponized, um, weaponized incompetence where, because I don't want to say that she's deconstructing incompetently, but what I see here is that he's like fast tracking this stuff and he's just like, he's impatient and he doesn't want to have to explain it all to her. Like he doesn't want to have to come home after doing class all day and learning about stuff all day and learning about theological concepts all day and then explain all those theological concepts to his wife to say, okay, well, this is what we believe now. And she, and have to have a right because he's already like on this track where he is going to come to, I don't believe any of it anymore. 
And I think he already kind of knows that at least on some kind of subconscious level. So he doesn't see the point in taking her with him on his journey of rapidly changing theological beliefs. But that's rude. That's not very nice of him. Well, it's almost the same idea that he had about dating where it was like, the this is your instruction. This is just what you do. I've already made all the mistakes. This is the list of things that you got to do. Uh, it Don't bother like going outside of this, but this is what the right answer is. It's not worth it to you to like, trust me, I know I've done this rather than saying, actually, you might figure this out for yourself, but here's some advice. Right. This is what I think. Um, your mileage may vary. He's just saying, no, this is the right answer. So we're just going to like go down this path. Uh, and it 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 does seem like he is just not really seeing her as a like he's been conditioned his entire life that men lead and that he's the leader in his home and i think he takes for granted that she is going to follow wherever he leads and why would she care if our kids suddenly take communion because she's not the spiritual leader in our home i am why you know why why wouldn't she just go along with whatever i say I just, it's hard. It's very hard for me to ascribe like cruelty to him or intentional, willful misogyny, because that's just not what I see. Um, what I see is, is very much more, uh, myopia and self-centeredness, which as much as those are serious flaws in a human being, I would rather somebody be myopic and self-centered than an outright misogynist. So it's around this time that Shannon falls into a very deep depression. I thought this um, this passage was really incredible about the grief of that. Actually, I have I have two quotes on this because she was grieving. She was grieving like her own identity as herself and also her faith. She was grieving losing her faith. Dying honestly sounded easier than facing the future. You see, while it was wonderful to finally have had an, a positive upturn in events by having reconnected with my identity and my purpose, it was these events that shook me wide awake. Those were the very things I had lost while I was busy obeying the church. I had just spent nearly 20 years trying to meet someone else's standards. And the second quote is, The first revelation I had the year I sat in bed was that I had made a deal without realizing it when I entered the church and when I married my husband. A deal with patriarchy, if you will. And while I had upheld my end of it, the men I had made the deal with had not upheld theirs. They wanted me to submit and follow, and I did. I'd embraced their ideas, and I'd done my part of the work. I stayed at home, supported my husband, and raised the children. I'd gotten up every morning and tried my best to fulfill patriarchy's dreams, the dream of male leadership. In return, the men of the church had promised to protect and love me, but they did not do that. They did not protect or cherish me. They did not acknowledge the whole me. How can someone protect or cherish something they don't even see? I lost 20 years just like Shannon did, but in a very different way than she did. She asks, she asks in this book, how much of my life did I miss? How much of my life was I just not present for? She grieved all at once everything from missing out on her bridesmaids being who she wanted them to be to all of the years of feeling invisible behind marriage and motherhood to being invisible again in deconstruction as her husband called the shots and moved the goalpost 
She grieved most of all the loss of self brought on by evangelical culture. And I think her writing about that loss of self is some of the most clear and heartbreaking that I have ever read. She just describes that in in an incredible way. Okay, soapbox time, I guess. Um, <laughs> people who want to talk down to those deconstructing will say, oh, you left because you wanted to sin. You left because you wanted to wear pants and go to movies. Uh, you left because you wanted to drink alcohol. And they trivialize deconstruction to be about what quote unquote sins you wanted to do. And I think one reason that that is so offensive is because of this intense grief of loss of self. People who deconstruct aren't doing it because it's easy. And I think this loss of self is something that you experience, at least I experienced very early in deconstruction. And that's my opinion of most people who have talked to me about it as well is that this is not this is something that happens pretty quick people know what they're getting into people know that they're going to go through this pain on their deconstruction journey and that is one of many reasons that it is so offensive and obnoxious to do the whole you just left because you wanted to send thing well, the idea of you just left because you wanted to sin, that says more about them than it does about you if you're deconstructing. Because it goes back to more like, do they see this as just like B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving Earth? Like, is that the extent to they think that it is where it's like, I want to either sin and do bad things or I want to be good and do good things? Like, that's how... I mean, if if you kind of have that reaction to people deconstructing rather than saying, okay, well, why would you actually be thinking about this? I mean, you're really saying more about yourself than you are saying about them. At this point, um, Shannon and Joshua kind of decide to get divorced pretty amicably. It seems like from the book that they just decide their lives are going in different directions. Shannon goes back into trying to do music. She has an album out now, I believe. Did you listen to any of her music? I heard one song. I listened to it. My impressions of it are that it, I mean, she's a good singer. I think she's got a good voice. The impression that I got of her album is that it sounds kind of like worship music, mm -hmm. but it's secular. It's not about Jesus. Well, hey, that might be something that some deconstructors would really like. Yeah, some deconstructors might want to hear worship music about uh, deconstruction. Uh, yeah. And if you do, uh, she releases under the name Shannon Bonn, B-O-N-N-E. Um, is it Bonn or Bonnie? I, I actually Bonn. do not know. So you can look it up, Shannon Bonn, B-O-N-N-E. She is writing a musical about church culture. That would be really funny. I am jazzed about <laughs> I mean, I think, well, you know, she spoke very early in the book about how much she loved musical theater, how she, you know, she was in a production of Annie and she really wanted to just do that. She wanted to be on Broadway. So I'm glad that she is getting the opportunity now to pursue the passions 20 years later than she should have been allowed to be pursuing the passions, but she's doing them now. And that's good for her. Thumbs up to you, Shannon, if you hear this. She finishes the book talking about cultivating her intuition and cultivating 
her sense of self gathering the pieces of herself that were broken back together and finding her courage. And I could leave you on, on one quote that I thought was really inspiring and leave us on a happy note here. I think that is what the church never wanted for me to wake up and realize it wasn't more obedience that I needed. It was more courage. We were taught we did not belong to ourselves. I needed courage to do just that. We were taught to live for the church's values. I needed courage to live by my own. We were taught to become the women they imagined. I needed courage to become the woman I imagined. That's a fantastic quote. Um, And this was a fantastic book. Oh, also, I should add that she uh, goes and becomes close with her mother again, and she goes and talks to other friends who were doing music and other friends who she had before she got sucked into the whole church thing and repairs some of those relationships, which is fantastic. And we love to hear it. Overall, would definitely recommend this book to anybody who is interested in reading it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Go read this book. And in, on the you know off chance that Shannon hears this, thank you so much for this book. Yes, thank you for writing it um, because people needed to hear it. Uh, And I guess that's it. Next week, what are we talking about, Sadie? Uh, I don't know if we've locked it in. I think we're talking about Mary Cosby. Uh, Assuming that Sadie can get through season two of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City by the time that this ep- that we we are working on that. I don't know if that's going to happen in time. If it doesn't, then we'll do something else instead. Uh. Really excited to talk about that one, though. I'm really excited for you guys to see what we've got going forward. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram on at Leaving Eden Podcast. You can follow me at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Sadie, your socials. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.